Welcome to Policies and Politics, Views from the Industrial Heartland, featuring Tim Francisco and Paul Sarasic. Hello, welcome to Policies and Politics, Views from the Industrial Heartland. I'm Tim Francisco, Professor of English and Director of the Center for Working Class Studies at Youngstown State University. And I'm Paul Sarasic, Professor of Politics and International Relations at Youngstown State. Today, our guest is Chris Arnotti, writer and photographer. Chris holds a PhD in particle physics and is a former Wall Street banker. He left that life to chronicle the experience of what he calls the back row, Americans struggling in poverty, addiction, and disenfranchisement. Chris, thanks for talking with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Hi, Chris. Um, I think in many ways you are kind of the, the perfect guest um, for the for this podcast, because you know what we really want to do here, what we're trying to do through this podcast, is understand um, what are often called these white working class voters, blue collar voters, you know, whatever you want to call them. And in part, this is because I think for both Tim and I, you know, every four years um, we have reporters parachuting in um, to this area, and you know, they want to study. Um, their subjects in, in their natural environment, um, so to speak. Um, that's kind of how they look upon it. And they come to us asking us about, you know, these voters. Um, and, you know, even though we, we talk about it all the time, we try to answer their questions, um, you know, in many ways, we don't really fully understand them. So we're trying to bring guests on who can help us do this. And I wonder if you just start out for, for listeners that aren't familiar you know, with, with your writings, talking a little bit about sort of the front row and the back row typology, you know, sort of approach to this and, and what you mean by that and, and kind of why you first, how you first came up with it. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so to give you some, a little bit of context, I've been spending, I guess, basically since 2009, um, quote, immersed um, in the, in these, in the communities that uh, a lot of people parachute into. Um I spent uh, four years uh, in the South Bronx with a with a group of um, um, people who were in and out, basically on the cusp of society. Uh, they were they were addicted. A lot of them, most of them, were addicted to heroin. Most of them lived in and off. Basically, were would be categorized as uh, homeless. Um, and uh, I ended up basically spending writing writing their stories and photographing them and uh, trying to tell. The, the world, the, how they saw the world. Um, similarly, I then got in my car and uh, put close to 400,000 miles driving around the United States into similar communities, what I call back row communities, and um, including including Youngstown. Um, what I what I what I saw was, you know, in places like South Bronx, and places like Youngstown, and places like Portsmouth, and places like El Paso. Um, what I saw was kind of a, despite very big differences, despite you know a Hunts Point being a mostly Latino community and the South uh, and in urban setting, and for instance, you know, uh, someplace like Portsmouth being largely white and, and, and largely rural, I saw very similar attitudes and uh, in, in the sense of the, the people in these communities felt very um, basically felt disenfranchised. They wouldn't have used that word. <laughs> um, uh, they felt uh, ignored. They felt uh, overlooked. They felt scorned. Um, they felt that uh, kind of the the political dialogue and the kind of dialogue you see on nightly news or you see on Twitter if they if they bothered to go on Twitter um, was just 
wasn't wasn't about them and if it was about them um it was kind of scornful it looked down on them um and i started seeing what was similar in all these communities besides that attitude was most of these people had a similar background in the sense that even though they came they were of different races and came from very different places um they all had um education that didn't go really beyond high school um if it went beyond high school, it was uh, you know, community college, it was a trade school, it was a smaller state school for a few years. A few even were college graduates and you know, they might have gone to smaller smaller schools, which by the way is the largest educational experience for most Americans. <laughs> um, versus kind of what they were seeing and kind of talking to them over the TV or through through the internet of people who are highly credentialed, has lots of resumes, and went to went to colleges that were very different from, from the colleges they went to, Ivy Leagues basically, and had postgraduate degrees. And so that that camp is the one that I think is easier to understand is what I come from and I think uh, you, a lot of listeners probably come from and a lot of people, both of you come from, which is what I call the front row, which is people who um, have an elite education, work in academics, work in, you know, build resumes, um, <clears throat> build their life around their resumes. And um, I started recognizing, thinking that, you know, what what was really different here was it wasn't just one one group of people, the front row had... Um, you know, all this education and, and quote, the back row had lesser education. It wasn't just that there was this kind of uh, descriptive difference. It was a very difference in how they looked at the world, how we looked at the world versus how, you know, uh, others look at the world. We in the front row look at the world. Um, how we kind of place ourselves in, in, you know, how we place ourselves in, in the universe <laughs> um, at very deep levels, um, you know, and I, I think we in the front row, and I say we because that's that's why I am, are often the people who are, you know, to use a, sorry to use a word, we're the weirdos. Um, you know, we're the ones who are very different from the country we tend to make policy for. And um, I think there's a, there's a big gulf between us, the people who make policy, the people who have these big resumes, the front row, and the people we make policy for. Um, and I think that golf is that that golf that is almost insurmountable at a level. Um, and I think that explains a lot of our political problems these days is that we, we, we these two groups, the back row and the front row, I mean, uh, speak different languages um, and we speak past each other in that sense. Hmm. You know, Chris, you've. Um... You talk about that a little bit in dignity, and I think it's a point worth expanding on because it seems like what you're saying is this is not just um, a policy gulf, right? Or rather, it's a, a gulf between policy sets and value sets. And I wonder if you could talk about this problem of policy as a problem of misunderstanding differing values. Yeah. Uh, the, the you know, to, to, to use a geeky term that the front row understands, I think that the economic term is utility function, I believe, um, that, you know, we in the front row assume everybody has a utility function, i.e. they value what we value, and therefore policy should be built around, you know, maximizing those values or, or, or allowing people to have those to, to, to attain those values that we wish they would attain, which is basically what we do, which is being being 
being physically mobile, geographically mobile, and going out and building a resume and going, go, getting as much education as we can possibly can so we can maximize the amount of money we make um, or the amount of credentials we get. You know, the, the back row, uh, the normies, whatever you want to call them, the, the vast majority of Americans, in my view, have a different value set. Their, their goal is to, to the degree they have, you know, to the degree as explicit is to build, to, to, to focus on things that I would call, I call them non-credential forms of meaning, but I would also call them transcendent values, things that are hard to quantify, things that are not easy necessarily to put on a resume, things like being a good resident of a neighborhood, being a good neighbor, um, being being a lifelong member of a club in the town you were born in, um, going to church regularly, um, being a, being a um, being a, a valued member of your of your of your um, of your faith. Um, so, what I, I call them non-credential forms of meaning, and they're basically our faith in place. And then I would adjacent to that are things like family. Um, you know, there was a, I always think of the, the classic case I think of is there was a young, a young woman in the McDonald's of East LA that I met. Um, East LA is a largely Mexican American community, first generation. It's, it's working class. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty by, by statistics, it's pretty poor. Um, and you know, she would come to the McDonald's every night. She was probably 17 to 20. Um, she'd come to McDonald's every night. And I've seen this a lot because I spent a lot of time at McDonald's. Um, she would come because um, her family wasn't didn't have Wi-Fi. And so she would come to the McDonald's to use the Wi-Fi and do her homework and play her games and, you know, do what you spend basically four hours a night in the McDonald's um, using her computers and uh, game in her, in her games. Um, and she saw me because I'd be there every night, um, you know, um, writing up my notes and, and, and writing my articles. And she eventually, uh, you know, started asking me. She says, you know, like, where are you from?" And I said, "Well, I'm from New York." And she goes, "Oh, I'd love to go to New York." And I'm like, "Yeah, well, you know, you can go. There's a lot of good schools there." And she goes, "Well, I can't really go. I'm, you know, I'm going to East LA Community College, which is a good school, um, but um, I can't necessarily go." And I said, "Why?" She goes, "Well, because I, I'm my mother's translator. Um, she's she's she doesn't speak English." Um, um, this young, like a lot of immigrant families, this young woman is uh, is bilingual, and so she she basically helps her, her 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 parents navigate the United States. And I think there's a lot of people who would look at that decision that she needs to stay home to be to help her parents, as opposed. Uh, I don't know if she had she could have gone elsewhere. I don't know if she had the academic background to, but you know, if given the choice between staying. In East LA and going to East LA Community College and supporting her mother, or going off to Harvard or Princeton or Cornell or Mount Holyoke or you know, or or, or Oberlin, these other options, she would choose to stay in East LA. And I think that's kind of the divide we we get, which is I think a lot of people, including you know people in the front row, would look as that at that decision as 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 the wrong decision. You know, you should go out and maximize your 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 education. Whereas I think you know a lot of people uh, who have a different quote utility function understand that that's 
uh, that's probably the right choice to stay and support your family. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's a huge, um, you know, one of the things you most often hear with working class communities, with disenfranchised communities is, well, why don't you just up and leave, right? Why don't you move? And it doesn't take into account those really important family networks and connections. I think that's such a strong point you're making. Yeah, and I think this, yeah, this... You know, the, 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 the whole mobility issue is one I think that I feel like it's the one thing that my book has been able to get across to some people in the, in the policy class is the idea that just get up and move is so offensive. Um, and it, it, it really cuts at the core of what, you know, it, it, it highlights the differences between people, you know, the front row who has this, like, you know, just go out and do it, you know, get your, get your, get as much education, go to the best job you can. Now that's not to say working class people don't move a lot. Um, you know, I just, you know, there are times I going back to the McDonald's, I stay in cheap motels, McDonald's, there are plenty of people, um, who live, you know, you can see, uh, there's a, there's a corner of every Walmart, um, where people sleep in their cars. Um, you know, that's, that's a sad reality. It's one that, you know, I can walk into a Walmart parking lot and immediately find the corner where people are sleeping in their cars. Um, cause I would sleep in my car in the Walmart parking lots. And, um, about a quarter to half of those cars are, are trucks that where the guy is, and it's always guys usually, um, is doing a gig job up, you know, four states over, um, for a month and then before going back home. So people, you know, people working class will scramble hard and, 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 and are entrepreneurial and do their best to, 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 to get, get paid well, but you know, they're going to go back. <laughs> um, and, and they're going to, and, and if they do move, they're going to, you know, they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to maintain the roots of where they left. Um, you know, you see that, you see that in Appalachia where you still have, you know, people who regularly come back from Detroit and Chicago and, and Cincinnati to go down to, 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 to see their family in Appalachia that left two generations or three generations ago. There's a strong, there's a strong attachment to place. And I think, what, this is why I go back to the, this concept of transcendent values or non-credential forms of meaning. Place really matters. I think we in the policy class think, what do you mean? It's like, there's no economic value to place. But, you know, growing up in the same city and having the connections you have, um, and even, you know, I will say more nebulous things like, you know, finding beauty in the hills outside your house <laughs> or, you know, or the, pl or, the, or the plot of land across from your plot of land, you know, that familiar familiarity, um, there, there's a real value that comes from that. And I think we tend to, the policy class and in in, in the front row tends to dismiss that as just having no value. Like, well, so what do you mean? What, what, you know, who cares? <laughs> that's not, that, that's not getting, making you more money, so why do you value it? Right, and I, I think that this had real, um, real policy and political implications um, over the past five years. Um, because, you know, when, when Donald Trump, for example, you know, run, runs for president, he puts front and center trade policy. Um, you know, which is something the Democrats always talked about. Um, but again, you know, we're basically sort of neoliberal free traders um, in the end. And, and Trump put that front and center. And it was so appealing, I think, to voters in the middle of the country. And, and maybe, I don't know what you think about this, does help account to some degree for the change in, in voting behavior that we saw in the industrial Midwest. 
Well, I, I think I think that was a huge issue, and I, I think um, you know you look you look at uh, I believe um, I believe you Sher, Sherwood Brown I, is that the right pronunciation of his name? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you know, <laughs> he 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 knew that. I, I don't know if he still knows that, but uh, there there was there's a period where he where he understood that, and you know, I mean, I just you know, I, I just look look at look at Youngstown, <laughs> you know, I mean, look at um, look at uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, as the perfect example for me, you know, um, I the, the whether or not you know, I, I think. The way we talk about these issues, like free trade, uh, on in policy debates, is kind of like it feels like a grad school seminar where we're arguing with each other about you know things that are very different than on the ground. You know, we 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 well actually a lot. You know, well actually it's better for the country. Well actually, you know, the steel mills would have closed anyways. Well actually, that's not how people see politics who who aren't you know gifted with huge resumes they see it as what do you mean my factory's gone and there's a factory now in in mexico or there's a factory now in china um uh that you just it's a pretty easy connection to make um you know battle creek michigan it was very simple it's like you know battle creek michigan is where they make kellogg's it's where they make cereals um and uh you know there, there were people. I, it wasn't just Battle Creek. I met this. I met people all across the country. I met people in Youngstown. I remember meeting some African American gentlemen in the McDonald's in Youngstown who said almost exactly the same thing, which is, I could walk out of high school into a steady job, and that steady job allowed me to build a family, buy a house, build a family, and have a life. And that, that those weren't the words they used, but that, that pathway was pretty standard what i heard from people at the age 16 over in all these communities and that pathway is not there anymore you cannot walk out of high school into a steady job that allows you to to, to buy a house and build a family and that that pathway steady job buy a house and build a family when that falls apart all sorts of other things bad things happen and you you can see that in you know in in, in places like Youngstown and places like Battle Creek where that instability um, brings in a lot of other in, into the vacuum comes drugs and despair and the the older people especially who have some perspective look at their life look at the nut life of their of their of their, of their grandkids and and just say basically what changed i had this i had this pathway they don't have this pathway i don't see them having this pathway and it's pretty clear to me that the factory that i that employed me is no longer there and that's due to free trade hmm. um i wonder oftentimes you know voters around here are portrayed or people around here i should say are portrayed as being very xenophobic um borderline racist um you know on this and Yet, you know, economically, kind of what we're seeing on the ground, particularly in, in the Youngstown region, is this influx of, you know, foreign direct investment. Um, you know, Altium Power Cells, which is, you know, half um, the Korean, South Korean company, LG Chem. Um, and also you have a French-owned company, Valoric, that's a, that's a big employer around here. Foxconn, the Taiwanese company, um, is moving into the old General Motors plant in this area. And I, I just wonder, um, how do you expect... 
um, you know, from your travels, you know, people in this area to sort of accept these new immigrants that are going to be coming into this area, you know, largely from Asia, but providing them jobs. Um, because, you know, the sort of simple knee-jerk reaction is that, well, people are xenophobic, they're not going to be accepting. But I wonder if that's how you view, um, you know, the people in this region, how they're going to kind of react to this real change that's happening. Yeah, you know, one of the one of my biggest frustrations is that kind of whole idea that, um, you know, there, there are kind of two ideas. One is that the the working class is, is racist and xenophobic and and the working class is um, is very, 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 um, very segregated. I mean, New York City is the most segregated city there is. You know, Milwaukee is the most segregated. You, you go into young, young towns, half black, half white. <laughs> you know, um, you, you walk in any McDonald's, and that's pretty clear. Um, you know, um, I I was recently in Indianapolis. There's a large, you know, like like a lot of places, a large Mexican-American community in Indianapolis that integrates, um, you know, not seamlessly, but in, 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 in real ways that unlike the work, the racial integration in the working class communities is much more about a shared live experience. You know, a working class black and a working class white and a working class Mexican American have a shop in the same sort of stores, <laughs> you know, attend similar type churches, um, uh, drive similar trucks or, or cars, and they interact on a daily basis. You cannot, you cannot interact. They work the same sort of jobs. And so there's a lot more shared life, um, you know, shared experiences. Um, whereas, you know, in the upper classes, uh, life is very, life is very segregated. Um, you know, they don't have any, any connection to, to people who, who, who perform manual labor. And so I think that diversity plays out in a much more lived experience way in the back, back row. Um, and so consequently you, you can't have problems. I'm not denying there are not problems. Um, and they tend to be a lot more visceral. Um, because people are interacting more often, um, but but I, I think people are very open-minded if given the time. I think it's I think what what the biggest issue often is is how quickly things change, and I think you know the racism rears its ugly head when there's very dramatic changes in very short times. And I think it's. I think if you look at how the Mexican American community, in particular, has integrated itself into into Southern communities, Midwestern communities, you, you know, they're now an integral part of a lot of cities, like like Indianapolis, um, you know, like places like places in in um, <clears throat> like like Mississippi and Alabama towns. You find large communities of Mexican Americans, and I think the the process needs to take place. In a, in a larger time frame, when, when there's abrupt changes, then I think things get really ugly. Isn't there also, Chris, a kind of political exploitation? And, and as that's coming out of my mouth, it sounds really naive. Um, but, you know, you're siphoning off, if you will, a white working class from a broader working class um, for a kind of political gain, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been, you know, we're getting into kind of some deep, dangerous territory here, but I think there's, I think there's, I think there's always been a, I don't know if it's cynical manipulation. Some of it might be just uh, that uh, kind of like the the ruling class ha, ha, has you has used kind of um, 
uh, xenophobic fears um, to their advantage um, to kind of like, you know, keep people to keep the working class from uniting in, in a way that uh, that would uh, allow them to kind of really threaten the rule of the uh, of the wealthy. So I think there's um, uh, I think I'm think I, I think there's a, you know, I really wish we could go, you know, I really, really wish there would be a um, the ability to form a um, multiracial working class party. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying the working class itself isn't isn't um, isn't an impediment to that. But I think that the ruling class um, is really worried about that and, and manipulates the manipulates it so that that won't happen. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, you know, I think on that topic, there's a, a portion in your book, Dignity, where you I, I'm going to quote you here, actually, and ask you to comment a little further on it. You say that uh, for those who don't have the resources, personality or the desire to get an education, there is little left that values them. There are fewer and fewer jobs to take pride in. The religious life is viewed as illogical and local pride is said to be provincial. There is another option, racial identity. That option is the most dangerous. I feel like there's a lot in that relatively brief quote that's related to what it is you're talking about here. Could you uh, unpack that a little bit, Chris? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of like what if I use non-credential forms of meaning. Yeah, I, I love that formulation. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, so I think of it as kind of like one of one of the the bumper sticker lesson of my book was, to me at least, was everyone wants to feel a valued member of something larger than themselves. They want to feel like they belong, and you know, place and faith offer those. You know, they offer a a a a, a place. You're a valued member of something larger than yourself. You're a good you're a good resident of your community. You're good. You're 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 uh, you're a spiritual leader within your church. Um, and these are these are these, uh, these when I th when I think about non 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 credential forms of meaning, they're free. You don't you know. They're gifted to you at birth. You have the. You don't need a resume to enter a church. You don't need a resume to be. You know, you're born to a community. Um, the third one is race. The third of those three is race, and that's you know that's a really dangerous one. You don't want to identify. You know, we we for 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 good reasons and for historically sound reasons, we ethnic minorities can take pride. And, and, and their race and, and their culture. Um, that's there's a historical reason we allow that, and, and that's 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 wonderful. Um, the white working class, which is the majority, if they're not, a, they're, they're not they're, they have no avenues. They have no avenues and non-credential forms of meaning. Um, you know, open to them. They cannot. Uh, faith is, as I said, is ridiculed. Places, uh, you know, you, to st stay in one place, you're provincial, but it also just limits like the ability to make money. Um, given the way we structure our economy, we've we've asked everybody to become economic migrants within their own country. So those two avenues are closed, and the only one open to them, then consequently, is is race, and we don't want that one to be open. That's a really bad one, um, you know. And so, but but these things are like bump bumps like a carpet that's too big for a room there's always going to be a bump you push it down one place it's going to pop up someplace else 
you know? And so if we, if we close off place and we close off faith and we're basically saying, you know, go, go into this third, um, go, go into the racial identity. Um, and I would, I would throw into that kind of racial identity politics too. Those are the, you know, that's the, that's the direction that, you know, the idea of being a valued member that offers something, you know, that offers you, you know, offer you a place larger than yourself. That that's, that's a political rally, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a Trump rally in some ways. And so it's not a good one of them necessarily, but it, but it is one. And so I think, you know, I feel like we've kind of created, you know, the kind of neoliberal ruling class, if you want to use buzzwords, has created the perfect kind of laboratory for increasing racism. Um, you know, we've 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 cut off the, these forms of meaning that are these non-credential forms of meaning that are free to the working class, free to the back row, and are channeling them into the only one that I, I the most dangerous of the three, which is which is uh, racism. Yeah, I think that's such a strong point. Um, you know, I think as we're we're winding up our time together, Chris, I, I'm wondering if you could think ahead a little bit. Um, do you see, you know, kind of more of the same? Do you see any opportunities for shifting the conversation in the ways that you've talked about? I'm, you know, I'm a pretty cynical guy. And um, part of the reasons I don't write about politics much anymore is because it's really depressing to me. Um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I feel like if you had asked me kind of four years ago where we'd be, I, I'm not surprised where we are now. Um, uh, I think it's only going to get worse. Um, I, I really don't, you know, I, I don't, I, I think, you know, I think there, there is an avenue there for what I would call a kind of a, a back row working class multicultural party. Um, I think if it ever starts really forming in a real way, um, it's going to threaten kind of the political class to the degree that the political class will do everything in, the, in its power to stop it from forming. Um, and so my, my, I, I, I'm inclined as a, I guess, I guess I'm naturally inclined on the left as it were, but I'm more inclined of, you know, I'm, I believe, <laughs> and I, I, I believe, in, you know, in, in democracy, I believe that, you know, you should listen to everybody and in aggregate, everybody is, you know, generally sensible. And I think, you know, I think the idea of a, of a, of a multicultural, multiracial working class party that really values workers, really values them, not just at an economic level, but at a cultural level, um, is something that really is just so threatening to the powers that be that they won't allow it to happen. I have one sort of final question here. Um, and this goes in a slightly different direction in that, you know, I've noticed that you've been you've been traveling a lot lately, right, to Peru, to Ukraine. Um, is this is this, a, you know, a different project or are you sort of finding something universal in, in, in what you're studying here? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about why you're going abroad now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like um, it, for me, it's it's about uh, gaining perspective. Um, you know, it's, um, it, you know, we, we are in the United States, such a small part of the world. Um, we have immense powers, but, um, we are a small part of the world. And so it's, it's always helpful for me to, to learn, to learn a lot about the United States by going abroad. You know, you, you, you get a lot of perspective. And so, um, 
you know, for instance, I was just in Lima, Peru, and I spent, uh, you know, two weeks literally walking around Lima. Um, I, I, my, my kind of thing these days is I, I walk like 15 to 16 miles a day through cities. Um, and what was really striking to me about Lima is, um, you know, it's just the going back to the idea of taking pride in, in, in a craft. You know, there, there are very few franchises in Lima. Everybody has um, kind of, everybody ha is a cobbler or, um, you know, has, I used to eat, I ate every day at this little ceviche place that was, that was literally three women in a, in a tiny stall who made ceviche from scratch, um, you know, from, from, from fresh fish, uh, uh, you know, six feet away from them. They took immense pride in that. It gave them a real, it gave them a real sense of uh, meaning. That kind of ability when, when work was about um, a craft. Um, and I think that's something also that kind of, I, that was something that I kind of missed in the U.S. that, I, that kind of uh, I made me understand the U.S. a little bit better is I think a lot of the modern jobs are so disconnected from the pro, from, you know, from what you're making. It's kind of like you're very much a, a cog in the machine. Um, and so they provide, quote, less pride, less dignity, whereas kind of, you know, a, a trade like being an electrician, like being a plumber, we still have those jobs, those still exist, but those provide people immense, you know, I think the, the, the idea of dignity work is kind of oversold in policy classes, but I think there's a real, there's a real kernel there. And I think there, there is a real dignity and a real sense of meaning that comes from a craft. And the closer you can be to work can be to craft, the, the more valuable it is. Chris, this has been a terrific conversation and I wanna thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Chris Arnotti's book, Dignity, is available just about everywhere. It's a terrific read, and the, the photographs are really incredible and moving. So thank you again, Chris. You've been listening to Policies and Politics, Views from the Industrial Heartland. I'm Tim Francisco with Paul Sarasic. Thank you. Policies and Politics, Views from the Industrial Heartland is recorded and produced at the studios of 88.5 WYSU-FM on the campus of Youngstown State University. More information can be found at wysu.org.